All right, welcome to our Wednesday night study. And just as a reminder, and I still slip up and I'm going to continue to slip up for years, we are no longer calling this encounter. I know that it has just been ingrained in us, but because Scott and uh, Diane have done a great job with these news ministries called Men's and Women's Encounter, we thought it would be less confusing to just confuse us temporarily as we rename this just Wednesday Night Study. So, that being said, welcome to Wednesday Night Study, which I'll, uh, I'm sure, refer to as Encounter at some point tonight. Um, Jim is not here. He'll actually be coming back Friday. He's still in Japan with the team of um, five or six individuals that are spending some time with the ministry that we support um, they were specifically in Osaka, but this ministry works in Osaka and, and in Nagoya. So they were spending some time with them, doing some teaching with them, doing some encouraging and just some general mission support. And I, everything I've heard is that it's been going great and they're really excited with what they've seen. So they leave sometime tomorrow, um, which means that they will be flying back into Tulsa late, late Friday night. So you can continue to pray for Mustard Seed, um, the church that they were meeting there, and then obviously for them as they're on their way home. One other thing before we get started tonight, and uh, we've got the screens back up and running, I will make zero promises about the stability of whatever we're about to do, but we're going to give it a shot. Um, but before we get there, um, in the back there were these, these cards. So some of you might, may have grabbed one, some of you didn't. Um, you may have already filled one out and dropped it in the plate on Sunday. Um, but this is a, a, a form we'd love for you to consider being a part of what we're doing here Saturday morning. Actually, Friday night, if you'd like to help with that too. But we are partnering with, uh, with Help Build Hope. And uh, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be building a couple of houses um, in the parking lot for Habitat for Humanity. And uh, I know Drew explained it on Sunday, but we still need uh, many volunteers to make sure that we can actually get this project done. So um, if you are interested, read through. There's a little bit of information there. Anything, any one of those three options, we would love to have um, you come out and spend some time with us. Not only is it a, an, a service opportunity, but I've done this several times by now, and it is a shocking amount of fun. And I love swinging hammers and messing things up with people I love. So, and then people that know what they're doing come in and fix it. And we have a great time um, all morning long. So if you're interested in that, please give us your name and phone number. But probably the most important thing would be if you'd write your email address on the back. There is um, rain in the forecast. So we have, we have a contingency plan to move it indoors if necessary. Um, and so we'll be here to reroute people if we have to move it indoors, but it'd probably just be easier if we make the call early enough to let you know via email. So if you're interested, we'd love to have you out, and I promise it'll be a lot of fun. Fill that out, and then um, just put it back on the table on your way out, or give it to me um, on your way out of here, and uh, we'll see you Friday evening or Saturday morning, whichever one you can make. Uh, oh, and one other thing, it is relatively kid-friendly. You'd be shocked at how young the children can be in actually take, I mean, there's Trace Irwin will work circles around me, so uh, we can actually have a good time as a whole family. All right, let us begin with a word of prayer, and then we will hop into Paul's famous passage regarding elders and deacons. God, you are supremely good, and uh, you love your church. And I pray that we would never forget that. You've created the church. You care for her. You have a, a purpose for her. And therefore, if all of that's true, you have an idea of the best way that it can operate and how it should run. I pray that we would hear the, uh, the great words of the Apostle Paul, not great because of him, but great because of your inspired spirit. And that we would learn not only what you instruct certain men to do and to be, but the way you want your church to look. I pray too for our team in Japan and uh, 
not necessarily just for their safety on the way home, but that the trip would have been fruitful and you would have been honored and that the ministry that they got to spend some time with will be encouraged and that all together it was a blessing. And then I pray for our time this weekend as we get to help some families in need. We can sacrifice a few hours of our time to serve others. Teach us to be excited about these things. Teach us to find these things in the true scriptures. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Okay. You'll notice that your notes um, actually look a little different in terms of the back. I didn't really give you a lot of space for notes. But there are, um, there are two important texts. They're not the only texts, but they're two helpful texts that I think will be a, a, a good jumping off point before we get to 1 Timothy 3. Um, so I, I want to ask the question, what is our task tonight? And I think that we are going to look in and see what kind of leaders does the Bible describe? And, and I want you to even bear with me for a bit before you think that this only pertains to a select number of people within the church. Actually, I think there's a lot to learn here for anyone who's a part of the body. And actually, it, it has a little bit of weight to bear on how all of us live though it will talk about a few select groups. So we're going to ask, what kind of leaders does the Bible describe in the church? And the, the New Testament has a number of names and offices and positions and um, obligations, but the two that continue to rise to the top are elder and deacon. And we'll see even those names are a bit different. In our text, actually, it won't say elder. It'll say overseer. And our text isn't going to use the word deacon as much as it's going to use the, the words for servers. Now, there is some distinction between these. Sometimes it appears as though they're interchangeable. Paul will refer to himself as an elder, but he'll also refer to himself as a, a server, a deacon. Now, there's some words that, that go alongside with these. Elder is elders episcopoi, from where we get the idea of the Episcopalians would take this word, the and then you have press. How do you actually spell that? Teroi. Actually, that's a Y. Presbyteroi. Which we get the name or the word presbyter or presbytery or presbyterian. So these these even church traditions would be taking their name from uh, a church structure that they hold very highly. Deacon is actually, I always want to put the, yeah, diakonos, which we'll see in the book of Acts is a server of tables. But that's not the only way to describe it. Again, Paul will call himself a server. He'll call himself a deacon at some point. So we have these two offices. And now Paul, in 1 Timothy 3, is going to describe what these look like. And what are the differences between the two. And you'll be shocked that there's actually not a whole lot of differences between the two. You'll, actually, you'll, you'll look and say, I don't know if I can see a whole lot of differences between the the descriptions of elder or overseer and deacon and the descriptions of just a Christian. It's amazing how, how much they just run alongside one another. So before we get into the description of primarily their character, we should probably look at how Paul expects these people to function. What, what tasks do they undertake? So before we jump into 1 Timothy 3, on the back of your page, I have a couple of important passages. Now, Acts 20 
is an amazing chapter in which the Apostle Paul is saying farewell to a church that he loves very much. He believes he's on, Paul believes he's on his way to Jerusalem to die. He thinks he's going to be killed in Jerusalem, and yet he's, his resolve is as fierce as could be. He's going to, this is what he needs, the spirit is moving in this direction. He's convinced he's going to die. And he's saying goodbye to this church that he has spent uh, many years doing ministry with and serving. He's saying goodbye to the Ephesian elders. And, and it's actually a really gripping story if you go in and read the whole section. But he gives some parting instructions to these men. He says, Paul loves the church so much. And you, if you ask, what, how much does Paul love the church? Look at his instructions he gives when he's, a, when he's convinced he's never going to see these people again. He says this, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Now I'm going to grab a pen here. That is the word for elder. Same word we'll see in our text in 1 Timothy 3. The Holy Spirit has made you overseers. To do what? To care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. That seems special. The stakes are high. The Lord is putting in your hands people that he has purchased with his precious, perfect blood. <laughs> you can feel the, the uh, weight of Paul saying, yeah, don't mess this up. <laughs> this is important. Verse 29, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, I always circle those words, connection words. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. This is Paul's instructions to the, to the Ephesian elders when he's leaving. And this is a tall task. And he just, in essence, this church is precious. Not that Ephesus has anything inherently special about it, but the very nature of the church, who's in the church, who the church belongs to, makes this precious, and it's going to encounter violence, it's going to encounter opposition. And he's staring these elders in the face, and he's saying, it's on you to keep this place safe, to maintain the faith. And we see four um, tasks that Paul gives them. First of all, notice, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So the first task, Paul says, you are leading on Jesus' behalf. He said, your, your, your office, your position has been given to you. By who? By the Holy Spirit. So what are you to do? You're to function as his representatives in this church. You are leading on his behalf. You're leading with his authority. As much authority that a human being can have. So it's not perfect. But he says, you have an, a divine appointment to care for these people, to care for this flock. Which brings us to the second thing, their task. Second thing he tells them, care for Jesus' bride. You are an overseer. If you're a, an elder, you've been entrusted with much. You've been entrusted with our Savior's bride. Care for her, he says. Then he says, there are going to be some evil people come in that are going to try to do damage to Jesus' bride. So Paul uses himself as an example. He says that he, 
with the implication that you would follow his example, did not cease night or day to admonish everyone. So the third thing is teach the word of Jesus. Admonish them. Paul said, after all, I, I, I wasted no effort. I, I just went after this, and I taught, and I taught, and I cared for the church in that way. And then look at how he finishes the section. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Sanctified. Fourth thing Paul says the elders are to do is to model the character of Jesus. After all, that's what sanctification is. It's growing in Christ's likeness. There we go. It's growing in Christ's likeness. And he says, you are to lead on Jesus' behalf. Care for his bride. Teach the word of Christ and model the character of Christ. So these are the, this is the task of elder. Okay. Let's look at the character he expects you to have. <clears throat> so this first section, the first seven verses deal with, okay, if you're to model the character of Christ, this is Paul's instructions as to what it actually looks like. He starts with, the saying is trustworthy. If that sounds familiar, he's already used that in chapter 1, verse 15, drawing a lot of emphasis to pay attention to what I'm about to say. He follows that with, if anyone aspires. Now, isn't that an interesting word? If anyone aspires to the office of overseer. Notice that it's, he doesn't even say that it's wrong to do so. It's, it's, it's almost as if it's admirable to want to be an elder. And we, I think, have a natural distaste for those who would want position, and I think probably rightfully so. But maybe that's because we misunderstand the office of an elder. I can admire anyone who aspires to be in a position of a servant someone who cares for other people, someone who protects other people. Uh, that makes more sense why Paul would say, if you would aspire to the office of overseer, and there's that word, and it's synonym, Paul uses it interchangeably, is elder. He desires a noble task. He says it's good to want it but know that it's a heavy weight. Know that it is a heavy weight. So he then goes and describes just how noble this task is. Verse two, all the way down through verse seven, describes just how noble the task of leading and caring for and shepherding God's people as an elder is. uses the word again, overseer, right there. Therefore, that's an important word. Since it is so noble, therefore an overseer, switch pins, must be, must be. Seems pretty certain, so I'll ask the question, why must he be these things? Well, don't forget what we saw in Acts 20. An elder is to lead God's people, care for God's people, and teach God's people. And if that's the case, I have no idea how you're going to do that without modeling Christ-like character. 
And so this whole section is what it means to model that Christ-like character as an elder. Okay, let's walk through and see. Now here's, there's a couple of things that we'll, we'll notice as we go through these lists. Um, one, there are some contentious ideas. When it comes to eldership and to the office of a deacon, um, there's lots of questions, I'm oh, sorry, there's lots of questions um, regarding can women be elders? What happens when, um, like, can you only have one wife? How strict is it? Those are, those are valid questions, but sometimes I think we come to this list of qualifications. Um, what an elder should look like, and we use it as a way to sort and exclude and I don't know that that's what Paul's doing because remember what this whole letter is all about. This whole letter is about protecting the, the, the church in Ephesus. Timothy, I need you to take care that this poor doctrine isn't taught, that people don't stray from the faith, the good faith, and the good conscience. And so I don't think he's using this as a list necessarily to disqualify men, though that's true, it can I think he's using it as a list to model faithfulness. Because again, you're gonna find it difficult, short of an instruction to teach. Most of this stuff applies across the board to anyone who follows Jesus. So I think he's describing an elder in his character because he's saying these are the people that can lead you well. This is what it looks like. This is what I want you to aspire to be like. These are the people you should follow. These are the people you should desire to look like. So if that's the case, we have to ask the question, pick, pick any man who you think meets the qualifications of an elder and ask the question, what would it look like if our entire church imitated his behavior and character? What would the church look like if we imitated that guy? Would we look more like Jesus? And I think this list almost gives us all the questions we have to ask. Can we look at a man? Can we look at someone who has been set aside to be an overseer or who aspires to be one and say, can I see Christ-like character modeled? So I could just, instead of giving this as a baseball card of this man's statistics, what if I just turn these into questions? So can I look at this overseer and learn what it means to live with integrity from him. Can I learn that from this man? The husband of one wife, um, really the phrase should probably, uh, is probably best rendered one woman man as if he only, he, he is only, um, has eyes or has feelings or has anything for one woman and he is, assumes that would be your wife. So this doesn't, um, most scholars would say this, Paul is not excluding um, men who have remarried. Lost the connection there. He's not excluding men who have remarried. He, uh, he's not excluding widowers who have remarried. He's not excluding single men. Steve, I don't know what's going on. If this drops down, I'll just have to run copies of my notes. We'll get it back. There we go. doesn't exclude all the individual situations. It just says, can I look at this man and learn marital faithfulness? Can I learn faithfulness in the context of a godly marriage from this man? It says, can I look at this particular man and learn what it means to be sober-minded, to 
think clearly, to dwell on the truth, to love the truth, to refuse to believe lies, to refuse to act on lies. Can I learn what it means to be sober-minded? Will he show me self-discipline? If he's to lead Jesus' people, can he show me what it looks like to be disciplined? Can he show me what it looks like to live a life that is respectable, that others look at as a noble man? After all, it is a noble task. Can this man demonstrate Christ-like hospitality? Can he show me how to behave with outsiders, to, to share what I have with others who don't have? Can I learn that from him? Will he teach me? Does he know the gospel? Can he give me instruction? Can he counsel me? Is he wise? Can he teach me to know these things? Will he show me that abuse of alcohol is no way to escape and no way to medicate and no way to soothe. Now, Paul doesn't prescribe total abstinence from alcohol. He actually will tell Timothy later on, drink a little wine for your stomach. But he does say, you know, the, the question you can always ask is, this isn't doing anything, is it? The question you can always ask, that screen's frozen. This is technology, it's the worst You can see the text anyway on your sheet. A good question to ask whenever Paul says, is this man, uh, make sure that he's not a drunkard, is will he refuse to be controlled by something if it's not Jesus and the Spirit, the Word? Oh, now it pops up. Okay. Can I look to this man? Let's see if this will follow me. There we go and who is so self-controlled and so disciplined that he can show me what it's like to be a leader who serves with strength that never approaches violence, with kindness. Does this man demonstrate an affinity for peace, a love for unity in the church that hates division? And I won't remember He's sober-minded, he's self-controlled, he's respectable. He won't entertain lies, but he will pursue peace. Can he demonstrate to me through his life a generosity that loves other people, that cares for others? Can he show me what it looks like to lead my home with dignity, to lead my children, and before we think this is an ugly word, to lead my children in the created order where there is authority structure, where they have been entrusted in my care and therefore I am responsible for them to not only provide for them and keep them safe, uh, of course that thing's not doing anything anymore, but to give them instructions, to discipline them, to lead them towards Christ. Will this man show me what it's like to lead my family like that? So that I don't roll over and let anything just happen, but I protect and I care for, after all, that's what elders do. They lead, they care, they teach, and they model. Can they show me how to do that at home with my kids? And he says, if they don't even know how to manage their own home, the small home, how can they handle the big home, the church? Then he says, it's like slowly catching up. <laughs> then he says, he must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up. Is it doing anything? Okay, there we go, whatever. <clears throat> he must not be puffed up with conceit. Can I look at this man 
and he, can he show me what it's like to live with humility? To, to not ignore gifts and abilities that I might have, but to live with genuine Christ-like humility. And refuse to be puffed up with conceit. Can, can this man show me what it's like to care for my community such that even when they disagree with me, they'll think well of me? Isn't that the ultimate art form? To have someone hate your ideas but have like, all the respect in the world for you? Can he teach me to do that? To be so loving and Christ-like yet unflinching with the truth that even when you disagree with me as an outsider, you'll still look at me as a man of integrity and I think still see a picture of Christ. Can an elder teach me to do that? You know, these are, again, short of able to teach, I really don't see any of these that us non-elders can find any exemptions from. Which is probably why Paul says this is what elders must be because if this is what I'm supposed to live like, then I need good godly examples that are leading my church that can show me how to live like this. And notice it just runs the gamut. It will cover their personal lives, their families, their communities, and their spiritual lives. It covers everything. I really don't know what's exempt from this list. It's a pretty big list and a pretty important one. And this is someone I can follow. This is what he says, an elder, those who are in with leading, caring for, and teaching the church. This is what it looks like for them to model for us Christ-likeness. Okay? If that's elder, then let's look at the next passage. Go back to the back of your page and look down at the bottom of... So we're going to look at Acts 6 and say, okay, what about these deacons? Now, this is, again, this is a word that flies all over the New Testament. It's seen in a number of contexts, but this is one where um, we see it probably most referenced. I'll just read this. He says, now, so this is, this is um, right after the account of Ananias and Sapphira. Um, the, the church in Jerusalem is still small, still young, but moving and moving quickly. And you'll see they're growing so quickly that they have a little bit of, a, of an infrastructure problem or, a, or a, a kind of corporate problem in terms of how do we care for all these people that are now all of a sudden part of the church. It says, so now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists, that would be the, the, um, the converts from the diaspora or from the area outside of Jerusalem that were more Greek than the native people of Jerusalem. The Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Effectively, the church is caring for those who need um, necessary provisions. They need food. They need, they need these things provided to them, and they're caring for widows who can't necessarily provide for themselves at this point in their lives. And they're saying the, the, the Hebrew women are getting preferential treatment over those who have a Greek background. And the church decides, well, that's not okay. We've got to do something about this. So the 12, that would be the disciples, the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Now, before you think that that sounds like a menial task, again, they're just saying it needs to be done, but we have other things we have to do. And I don't have to, I don't need them to feel guilty that they've been tasked as apostles with preaching the word. And they're saying, they're not saying this is beneath us. They're just saying we don't have time to do it all. We can't do it all. Obviously, it's not getting done. That's the word for deacon or the, 
the adjective that would go with the word deacon. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. He's saying we need prayer, we need the word to be preached, and we also need our widows to be taken care of. Let's elect some men to do so. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, that, that, famous, uh, that famous man from chapter 8, or 7 and 8, he goes on and chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So, what were the tasks that we can see in this narrative of the deacons, of the servers of tables? Fun one. They meet the needs of the church. They looked and they said, there's a need, of course. So you can underline that there were, the widows were being neglected in the daily distribution and so the, the deacons had a need that needed to be met. Now I'm just gonna keep writing in case it actually comes back up. Two, verse four, they did this so that the 12, the apostles, could devote themselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So the second task of the deacons was to support the ministry of the church. They said, we recognize that these 12 men have to preach. They need to pray. They need to lead the church. So we are going to take this off their hands to do so. We're going to take this off their hands and, and take care of it if we can. He says, you want me to jump back on there, Steve? Third thing that they need to do, verse 5 what they said pleased the whole gathering. And so they chose these seven men. So the third thing that the deacons do in this particular story is they unify the church. Can you imagine the division that might pop up as, um, as you, you have the, the Greek widows and the Hebrew widows beginning to complain against one another? And so they step in and they say, we see a need and we need you guys to be able to go and deal with something else. You have a ministry you have to do. So we're going to, we're going to take care of that need and preserve the unity of the church. And I think the most fascinating thing is much like the elders, if you look at verse 3, they said we need to pick seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom. So they too serve as models for the church, as examples for the believers. So, deacons, if you want to write this down, I wish, I don't know if you can see this stuff. We are going to totally just throw all the computers in the trash around here. But deacons meet the needs of the church, support the ministry of the church, um, unify the body around the church's mission, and model godliness to the church, much like the elders so flip back over on the other side of your page to the bottom of first um, Timothy 3 and this is going to look a lot like what we just did with the elders so it won't be hard to follow even without the screens he says this deacons likewise 
So there's your first clue that there's something in common between deacons and elders. Deacons likewise must be, there's that word, that, that phrase again, must be dignified. So why must they do, why, why must they embody all of these characteristics that it's about to list? Because they serve the church, they support the ministry of the church, they maintain the unity of the, the unity of the church, and in order to do so, they need to demonstrate the same character of Christ that the elders do. And he says, for the deacons, it looks like this. They will be dignified. So, again, um, we'll, we'll talk in a second about who deacons actually are. But let's look at their character and say, can I look at this man who's been offered to, up as a deacon or who we're going to describe as a deacon, and can I see Christ-like character being modeled? Can I look at this man or woman you'll actually see and learn to be dignified. It says not double-tongued. Can he teach me to be truthful and encouraging with my words? Not addicted to much wine. Can this man refu- help me refuse the temptation of drunkenness? Not greedy for dishonest gain. Can he teach me to steward God's resources well and with integrity? Verse 9, they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. That is the third time those ideas have been linked together. Hold the faith with a good, clear conscience. So the question is being asked, can this man show me what it's like to not only know the truth of the gospel, but to live a life that's been affected by it, to live a life that's been transformed by it, to live a sanctified life, to hold the faith and live with a good conscience? Verse 10, and let them also be tested first, okay? Can this man show me what it's like to live with transparency, to appreciate accountability? Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Can he teach me, he or she, teach me to set a godly example that others can see? Their wives, likewise, must be dignified. Now, let's, before we finish that sentence, there is a lot of dispute on whether or not this means the wives of deacons or, as it's translated in some translations, female deacons. Um, it seems like it should be translated the wives of deacons. But that doesn't exclude the idea of female deacons because Paul had Phoebe and Romans 16 functioning as a deacon. And after all, it's just someone who serves people, who cares for others, who sees needs and meets them. So he says their wives, whether that means the wives of the deacons or female deacons themselves, must be dignified, not slanderers. Can they teach me to not only have dignity, but to care for the dignity of others, to care for reputations, and to be careful with my words. They should be sober-minded, again, obsessed with the truth, clear thinking, faithful in all things, someone whose word is valuable, who can be trusted. It says, let deacons each be the husband of one wife. Again, a one-woman man. Can this person teach me marital faithfulness? Managing their children in their own households well, much like the elders. Can this person teach me to care for my kids well, to lead them to Christ-likeness? Four, those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves. A bit of a bizarre spot. We don't think um, many times that you should in the church really like others thinking all that well of you. But it says, those who serve well will gain a good standing for themselves, as if that's a good thing, and also great confidence in the faith that is Christ Jesus. Can I look at this man or woman who's serving others, and can they teach me what it's like to be respected and what it's like to grow in gospel-centered Christ-likeness to, as it says, um, gain a great confidence in the faith that is 
Christ Jesus. So if you want to write out next to it, much like the, the list of the elders, it covers everything. It covers your personal um, virtue. It covers your family. It covers your virtues in the community, and it covers your spiritual life. It says, these all must be true of those who would serve as elders and lead and govern the church and those who would serve as deacons and simply minister to people. Now, you all might know um, enough about our church that we have elders officially. We have 10 of them. And I love them. And I love that they fit this bill. Makes me feel really safe. I love that they love the truth and they love Jesus more than anything else and they're not afraid to let me know that. I feel safe working underneath these guys. And we don't necessarily have an official title of a deacon. But if a deacon is described as someone who serves the church when they see a need, who supports the ministry of the word, and who strives for unity in the church, well, then I just don't see the difference between a deacon by title and a really good life group leader or someone working in the nursery or someone volunteering with the youth or someone pulling weeds in the parking lot. It really, you know, we have a, actually a rather large staff here. And what we do every single week and every single year is undoable by even a large staff. And I can't tell you how grateful the staff and the elders are for the multitude of volunteers that contribute to the ministry of the word here, that see needs and meet them, that do anything to maintain unity here. Which is all well and good, but all of a sudden now I have a list that I have to measure up to. <laughs> but the good news is, like the deacons are, uh, like those who serve, serve as models to the rest of us who are looking at them. If I think that this list is a difficult thing to live out, God saw fit to give us 10 men who model it as elders, who lead this church who I believe have been ordained by God to govern, to care for. I mean, go back to the list. To, they've, they've been appointed by God to act on the behalf of Jesus Christ in his church. They care for his church. They teach in his church. And they model for us what it looks like to follow Jesus. I guess I'm gonna have to go old school and go back to the whiteboard. But... In the, if you, if you slap the, the narrative accounts of Acts 20 and 6, 20 being the elders, 6 being the deacons, if you put that alongside 1 Timothy 3, you see two aspects that we really need people to demonstrate for us, two aspects of following Jesus. 1 Timothy 3 shows us the character of Jesus. It really shows us what it looks like to be faithful to Jesus and to have all of these qualities such that you attain a degree of Christ-likeness that really is a model of his very character. But don't forget that that character comes with tasks, things that need to be done. And so the accounts in Acts 6 and 20 show us the deeds or the tasks that we need to take care of. And so um, we've actually, on, on, on staff, we call this the competency. Competency of Christ. Not only do I need to have some internal Christ-likeness, I have to have some external Christ-likeness. I have to uh, develop skills. Think about it, at any job. You have to have some level of internal aptitude and some level of skill to do jobs. We need to, in order to follow Christ faithfully, develop the character from 1 Timothy 3 and the competency of Christ that we see modeled in the book of Acts. 
which just fits with Paul's instructions to Timothy that you would hold the faith alongside a good conscience. Orthodoxy. Believe the right things so that you can have a good orthopraxy, so that you can do the right things. May we all strive for ever-increasing degrees of Christ's character and his competency. This means that we've, we're being led to and from the gospel. I'll explain it right here. Gospel-bound leadership drives us toward the gospel. It serves, it teaches, and it protects, demonstrating the competency of Christ. And on the flip side, that gospel-bound leadership is driven by the power of the gospel. The qualifications of both elders and deacons are made possible by the power of the Holy Spirit. The character of Christ enables men and women to demonstrate the competency of Christ. So when we do the work of Jesus with the transformed, sanctified heart of Jesus, when we do Jesus' work with his heart, the church stays on mission. So that's why we need guys that live like this to protect her. She stands tall against those who think back to chapter one of 1 Timothy. The church will stand tall against those who might teach any different doctrine or those who devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The character and competency of Christ demonstrated in those who serve at Sunnybrook Christian Church moves us toward, as Paul says in chapter one, a love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Hebrews 13 has a beautiful little line that tells me exactly why. I've never been able to put words to why I love our elders so much but Hebrews 13 says it like this in verse 7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So we need good men and women to model around here what it looks like to follow God, what it looks like to stay on mission as a church. And God saw fit in all of his sovereignty to appoint elders through Paul at all these churches that he planted. And they are to love, serve, protect, and model what it looks like to be more like Jesus. That is all. If I had the whiteboard, I would have drawn more, but you get six early minutes out of here. So... Jim will be back next week, and, um, and the back half of 1 Timothy 3 is a doozy, so buckle up. It's good stuff. Love you guys. Please come to help build hope. If nothing else, I'll juggle hammers.